Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Koinonia Church Message Library. Our hope is that today's message encourages you, challenges you, and brings you closer to Jesus. We are confident that God's Word is living and active and is relevant for us today. Thanks for joining us. Enjoy the message. I invite you to be seated this morning. I invite you to get comfortable if you're gathering with us online, connecting. We're going into a new series that we are just beginning today, and it's going to take us right through the summer. And I'm going to invite my friend Joel to come up and join me because we're going to do some uh, tag team teaching here. Thanks, team, for setting us up. And I'm welcoming up Joel Navziger. Joel and I get to the privilege of bringing the first message in this series together. And the series you can see behind us is called That You May Know. And we're going to take some time in studying 1 John, and you're going to hear a little bit from Joel's heart why this book is special and significant to him. But Joel, Joel, I had the privilege of marrying, officiating Joel and Holly's wedding. Holly was up here on acoustic playing uh, 10 months ago, and Joel has uh, had a period where he's been on our staff. He's currently continuing to pursue his theological studies. But Joel, just share with us so people can hear a little bit of your heart. What is the area at Koinonia where you're most involved serving? Yeah, so right now I'm most involved uh, in the young adults group here in the house. 2020 is our ministry name, and I serve alongside four other great people on the lead team, and I do a little bit of teaching as well. So that's where I'm most involved. Yeah. Yeah. And as I say, you're going to hear more from Joel's heart. I'm going to unpack some of the illustrations from this morning are going to come from him. Because you, you know all about my life, right? So it's time for us to, you know, reveal somebody else's heart and life and, and experiences. But our series this morning, as we step into this look at 1 John, is, is going to be asking God to open our eyes and to open our ears. Because you will read that John says, our eyes were open and our ears were open and, and our hands, we could touch and see the word of life. And John says, hey, people, (laughs) did I get your attention? Good. John says, hey, people, I want you to pay attention to what I'm saying because there's life found in Jesus that some of you are setting aside. Some of you are letting go of your faith in Christ, and it's changing your heart toward God, and it's changing your heart toward one another. And so we as a team felt like this, this is where God was leading us for this summer, to listen to John's words saying, to, hey, us, koinonia. He's calling us into awareness of our relationship with the Father and an awareness of love toward one another. We're going to focus on community. We're going to focus on being family together. And I know we've highlighted this before, but there's something specific that God, through John, is wanting to say to us, koinonia, do you love me? And do you truly love one another? We'll talk more about that as we work our way into this series. But community, how we treat one another as family, loving sacrificially, loving with sacrifice, loving one another. And then being faced with John's very strong words of, hey, wait a second here, listen. How can you say you love God, but you hate the person beside you? We're going to look at those sobering words this, this series as we study it. Joel, um, 
But I've referenced that you really like this letter. Can you share why you like this letter that John's written? Oh, man, how do you summarize that? Well, I would, I would say I find that 1 John has, this unique, has had this unique ability in my own life to encourage me to see the high calling of what it looks like to trust in Jesus and to love my neighbor, um, even in a pressure-rising situation or season of life. So it's, you know, it mobilizes you to see the practical dimension of what it means to live out new life in Jesus. And so it gives you that high calling, but it's also incredibly confidence-inspiring. So it brings you back to who you are in Jesus and recognizing that your life source comes from him, so that even though it gives you that high calling, it also reminds you that the Holy Spirit is in that with you, and you have Jesus' life you know, coursing through your spiritual veins. Hmm. Right on. And that's what we're going to get to, is what is going through our veins that's propelling us to love versus pushing us to maybe hate somebody. Uh, we're going to talk about two different roots that we see in John. And Joel and I are just going to be focusing on the first four verses of 1 John chapter 1. So you can open the, your word, the Bible, and be ready for chapter 1. But let me highlight an underlying root that John is wanting to get at with the, the believers of his day that is also applicable for us to study and look at, and it's the root of deception. It's a root that gets down inside of us, our minds, even in our hearts, how we live and do life. And we follow after this pattern, and yet we're being deceived. We, we think we're likable people. We, we, we think we're in relationship with God, but it's not showing up in our relationship with one another. And we're actually following into a pattern of deception. And John is pointing that out to the first recipients of his letter, because there was a, a meshing together. What Christians were doing was they were they were taking kind of their thoughts and belief in God, but they were welcoming in the beliefs of the Greek philosophy and the Greek practices of the day. And so what was happening is they were compromising because they were believing lies, but drawing that in, and it really watered down their faith and their response to one another. And they began to abandon their sole belief that Jesus Christ really came to the earth as God and fully came as man. And so that's what John's going to be addressing, that this deception that we can easily fall into. John points out that when we are in relationship or fellowship with God, we will choose not to walk in darkness. When we are in sincere relationship with our Father, through His Son, by welcoming the Holy Spirit, we will say no to darkness. But some people in John's day were saying yes to darkness, and they were walking in it. And they were being deceived by that darkness. Um, others uh, were thinking that, hey, I'm okay if I could just do some of what God tells me to do. You know, if I'm half obedient, then that's still okay. John's saying, wait a second. If you walk in disobedience to the Father, you are walking in a spirit of deception. And so John is really calling them back because he's, he's so bold to say, if you think you can do half and half with God, like, Obey him when you want to and when it's convenient and when you need stuff, but on the side, just keep living your life your own way. John says, you're actually a liar. Like, he's pretty bold and blunt. And we're going to look at some of those words and why he spoke them. And then, as I referenced earlier, this thing about 
loving God and hating our brother or sister. God, what's that all about? And maybe some of us would say, well, I would never do that. (laughs) We're going to go there and talk about it. But Joel, do you have some examples of, like you said to me, something about deception and something in your life? Would would you share an example with us? Yeah, so, I mean, as in 1 John, the the root of deception was leading uh, the believers to have fruit that came from that deception, right? And so if I think about my own life, one pattern that I can see in my own, in my, my own heart sometimes is that uh, when I'm in a situation like a meeting or whatever, if I feel like somebody has, you know, dismissed something that I've said or, um, you know, I felt like someone has passed over something I've said, I have learned about myself that sometimes my knee-jerk reaction is to be defensive. And I would say that, you know, that might be something that you guys experience too, that, you know, you're in a situation, nervousness is high, whatever, and you act defensively. Well, that can be at the root, I'm sorry, the fruit level. And in my own adult life, I've looked at the root of that and realized, you know what, there's something in me that um, wants to be taken so seriously that I um, will then respond defensively to other people that may, you know, have very well intentions, um, but something in me has believed a lie that I'm not being taken seriously, that, you know, forgetting that really my honor and my identity comes from Jesus first and foremost. And so that's just an example of, like, the fruit level of this can show up in really practical things in our lives, some things that we might even just like fly below the radar um, that get us to look deeper and say, where am I, where am I not uh, resonating with the truth? And uh, I wonder that of us, would any of you, should I make this a rhetorical question or should I ask and poll the audience here? <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah, have you ever been led in a path of deception? Where somebody reacts to you and you think the worst of them rather than looking at the sincerity of their heart. And I love how Joel said it. He, he asked, what's at the root? Why, God, why did I get defensive? We're going to look into that. I won't ask you to respond right now. But Joel, I talked about the root of deception. So what, what's the root that John's talking about that is healthy and good for us to be a part of? Yeah, so if we think about, you know, for our own response to this book, starts by, you know, looking inside of ourselves and saying, hey, there are roots, you know, there's areas of my life that have yet to be conformed after the image of the loving God. So, you know, we start by seeing that, and we see in the the letter of 1 John that what John is doing is calling his readers to then seeing where they're at and seeing where they need to grow to once again step in line with the root of their family life together as a people. And so that is the second root. You know, it prompts the question, you know, how do we get from this place of, you know, whether it's defensiveness or any type of, um, you know, dysfunctional form of relating to one another, how do we get from that place to stepping into the true life of joining together with love and fellowship? How do we cross that bridge? And it starts by asking the question, well, what ties us together as family in the first place, right? Yeah. 
You know, if we want to cross that bridge of like, now I see this issue in me and it's manifesting in my relationships, how do I cross that bridge? And you know, if we don't ask the why question about what joins us together as a community today and tomorrow and the next week after that, if we don't do that, we might actually find ourselves, you know, it might be that much harder to make that switch, to pick up, you know, um, the gift of community that God has given to us. And, you know, remembering that we're not just, you know, a social club that gathers around common interest. Our root goes much deeper than that. And so that is what we're going to look at in 1 John 1, 1 to 4 this morning. Leonard Brian, could you read that for us? Absolutely, yeah. Starting at chapter 1, this is 1 John, right? Not to be confused with his gospel letter that he wrote. Joel will refer to that, but go further back in your Bible, 1 John chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, that we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, and we have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to you to make our joy complete. Talk to us, Joel, about the author. Talk to us a little bit about John and the experience he's had with the Word of Life. Yeah, so um, if you think back to our series in First Peter, um, right away, First Peter opened with a greeting, a standard letter greeting. You know, it says, the Apostle Peter to the believers, and he explained where they came from. Now, right away, you might be noticing we're in a letter once again, so it's a similar type of writing. But right away, you've noticed, where's the greeting? There, there is no formal greeting. Whoever the author is has just thrown you into the deep end. So in some ways, for us to follow his example, we can jump right into the deep end. And what the author wants to get across to you right away is that he doesn't just know about the word of life. He has experienced the word of life firsthand. Okay, he doesn't just heard about it secondhand, but he's seen it, he's heard it, he's touched it. Those three words are getting across that he's had a very tangible experience with what he calls the word of life or God's life-giving power in the gospel. Now, of course, uh, there have been theories about who wrote this book because, you know, the author doesn't state it outright um, in either 1st, 2nd, or 3rd John, which If you were to look at these books, you'd see they're very closely connected. So as far as the letters are concerned, you know, they don't mention an author explicitly. But Christians throughout the centuries have concluded that the Apostle John wrote this book. And in, you know, more recent biblical studies, uh, you have had other hypotheses thrown out and saying, you know, maybe it was a community of people built around John, that sort of thing. Um... But I would say, you know, rather than, rather than getting into all that debate, I, I personally see, you know, no reason not to stick with church tradition on this. It does seem that John wrote this book. 
And you know, rather, you know, we might see that and think, oh, that's just a nice fact to know. But if we look at these first four verses, we see this is actually really important to the point that John is making, okay? Because he's saying, look, I've experienced this firsthand, okay? So for us, when we see that John wrote this, it's really important because we realize we are having a message communicated to us that this author was there for. He saw Jesus firsthand. He experienced Jesus as a physical person right in front of him. He saw his ministry. He heard his teaching. He witnessed him die on the cross for the sins of all humankind. He he witnessed him after he uh, rose again from the dead. He was there. Now, if you think about this, if you take a step back and think about this in another way, you know, if it's one thing to say, oh, I've heard such and such. It's another thing to say, I was there and I can tell you that such and such is true. So I used to live in Vancouver, British Columbia, and one of the major hikes along the coastal mountains there was called the Grouse Grind. I don't know if any of you have been there, but it has the reputation of being one of, you know, the steepest and most challenging hikes in the coastal mountains. And I'd heard about the grouse grind climb, um, you know, for a while before I actually did it. And people were like, oh man, it's so hard, you know. And I heard people say, well, it's just like steps the whole way up. And you're like, you get up there and you're like drenched in sweat. And you're like, now I have to go all the way back down. And like everyone like talks about how hard this hike is. I had heard about this hike so much that if someone could have asked, would have asked me about it, I probably could have communicated to them something of what it's like. But I decided I'm going to climb the grouse grind myself. I was with a group of people, but, you know, I was going to experience it myself. And I can tell you, the grouse grind is a challenging hike. <laughs> so I don't just have to say, oh, you know, my roommate told me it's hard, and now some of you will go yeah. there and think, oh, Joel said he heard this is hard. It's like, oh, man, Joel, Joel did this in the pouring rain. He, this, you know, this is a hard hike, right? And John is doing something similar here. You know, yeah. he's saying, I was there. Yep. I was there when the King of Kings died for mine and your sins, and I was there when he raised from the dead. And yeah. so we see this is not just a random fact. Yeah. This helps us to see John's testimony is being presented to us as something he has experienced firsthand. And as a result, he calls us to experience the life-giving power of the gospel firsthand as well. And Joel, I appreciate you unpacking that because it, it just brings it more into the day-to-day or the humanity of us to understand John, who is boldly communicating the understanding of knowing Jesus firsthand. Like when you say John was there, he was there with his brother James. Right. He was there with Peter and Andrew. He was there fishing. He was there pondering. He was there when the miracles happened. He was there. So he saw Jesus in the flesh. And then, as you said, he saw Jesus go to the, the cross and die for our sins. He heard Jesus say why he needed to go to the cross, why people had to have their sins paid for. John was there to hear all that. And then John was there when Jesus was speaking to him about carrying on this mission, carrying on the love of the Father. Um, 
don't stop now. Now I send you. John was one of those being sent. So, so yeah, John was there. He experienced it. So he can identify with you and I with some of the challenges we have of loving others, carrying the truth in the life. He was there. So let's believe him. He climbed the grouse grind, <laughs> so to speak. And he's a firsthand witness to us. So let's lean in and really take seriously what he says. Yeah, and like Brian said, he was sent with the apostles to proclaim the gospel to, you know, people of all nations. And so this um, group of believers that are receiving this letter would have been one of the people he probably would have spent, you know, some to quite a bit of time with. So to understand the audience of this book, um, similarly to the author, we don't see much direct description of who these people were. It's uh, entirely possible that they aren't just from one congregation of believers, but several, and maybe this letter was passed around. Now, either way, the kinds of struggles or pressure that John is uh, confronting in the book of, or the letter of 1 John is pretty common in the early days of being a Christian, okay? So, in some ways, that makes it Harder to, you know, reconstruct a historical setting. But in, one, in another way, though, you know, it helps us see, you know, this is pretty common probably in the early church days, um, so the kinds of things we're going to encounter as we walk through this letter. And not only that, but they are things that we encounter today, too. Might not always look the same, but part of diving into a letter like this is saying, hey, how is the world around us similar to the world around this letter. How is it different? You know, and so in this uh, case, the believers that John is writing to, you know, they've been a church for some time or churches for some time. And over time, people or leaders have started to separate themselves out from the congregation and have started to basically take up itinerant teaching Itinerary is another way of saying, you know, they have teaching ministries of their own. They're separating from these congregations. They're engaged in teaching ministries of their own. But they've started to claim that they have access to, like, a higher knowledge of what it means to be a Christian or of Christian doctrine than the apostles did. And so they're known by a lot of commentators as the secessionists, basically the people who seceded, who separated themselves from the body of truth and from the body of Christ and from their way of life as disciples to Jesus. They separated themselves out of that and they've started to pour teaching back into the community, trying to get people on board with what they believe in this higher knowledge that they quote unquote have. Now, once again, you know, people have, uh, you know, had theories of exactly what group are these people in history, you know, what philosophy are they most closely associated with, that sort of thing. Again, it's a little bit hard to form a complete picture with the amount of historical, you know, information that is clear from the book itself. And that sometimes happens when we're looking at historical context around a biblical book. Sometimes we don't get an airtight picture. But even when we don't get an airtight picture of the world around it, we have the book itself, the letters itself, to lean back on. And so as we go through the book, you're going to, the letter, you're going to see, oh, I, I can kind of see what truths are likely or, you know, false 
teaching is likely being spread. You know, I can see, oh, they probably are saying something about Jesus not coming back in the flesh. Oh, they're probably saying something about, you know, it doesn't really matter ultimately if you don't love your neighbor, you know, that sort of thing. So we can kind of put a mirror up to the letter and say, hey, you know, it was likely that John is confronting these false teachings firsthand. And we want you to know that it still happens in churches today, (laughs) that groups can divide out and say, oh, we believe something different than you or better than you. Uh, You don't have to drive very far into the countryside to see the first church of so-and-so, and and, well, then there's the first church of united so-and-so, and and lots of divisions start to happen. And we might think, well, that's just what happens to them. It wouldn't happen here in our home church, would it? That, that would never transpire. We wouldn't allow that, would it? But yet the enemy works the same schemes down through history to divide and conquer, to get us angry with one another instead of getting along with one another, hating one another instead of loving one another. And so that's why we feel this teaching is we should come back because there's something about community and we are part of one family, the body of Christ, and then let's apply that. So then how should we treat one another? Joel, take us back to that, that why question, like what lies at the heart of us being family and drawing us in fellowship together? Go yeah. back and repeat that again. Yes, absolutely. The, what, what ties us together as a family in the first place that moves us to then act like a family? And, you know, the Apostle John, in these first four verses, he, he highlights this for us. He says, our fellowship is with the Father yeah. and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Yeah. You want to know what ties you together that makes you a family and adds both urgency and power to you acting like a family? It's that our shared fellowship, you and I share a connection to Jesus who is our source of eternal life. And that has come with a brand new identity of being one with Jesus. And because we are one with Jesus, we have his Father as our Father, and his Holy Spirit fills us and empowers us and shapes us after his image and puts his character into us and into our lives. Now, John, uh, we've referenced now a few different books, you know, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and John's Gospel. Now, in all of these books, they share a lot of common language and common themes. And one of these common themes is the idea of eternal life, right? In 1st first, in first John 1, 1 to 4, it talks about the eternal life that was with the Father. In other words, saying Jesus, uh, the Father lives forever, and he has planned from eternity past to bring human beings like us into eternal fellowship with him. It's been with the Father, but it's been revealed in these last days, right? It's been here in the person of Jesus. God's life that he has always had forever has been basically made public for all people to see and come and find their new life in him. So this is a theme we see throughout John's writings. So 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, John's Gospel. We also see that in John's Gospel especially, 
the theme of eternal life and the theme of fellowship with God are deeply connected. What chapter is that? So we're going to look at that. To, well, it's throughout the book, but, okay. but the one, you see it especially in John chapter 17. Um, so John 17 is known as Jesus' high priestly prayer. So before Jesus is arrested and crucified, he prays for his disciples, both his immediate disciples and all of us as well as followers of Jesus. And so you get to see, basically, it's one of the most intimate looks into Jesus' heart in the gospel. Because you get to see what does he pray to the Father, you know, in front of his, in front of his disciples. And John 17 says this. After Jesus spoke these things, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Since you gave him authority over all people, so that he may give eternal life to all you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. He's saying, you have given me the authority to invite everybody into a new, fulfilling, and forever life. And this is the core of that fulfilling and forever life, is that they may know you. You hear that connection between fellowship with God and uh, the theme of eternal life? That they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, who you sent. Now, if we think about this, you know, and we won't go through the whole chapter, but in the context of, of John 17, Jesus then goes on to say that his glory... His shared glory with the Father, which they've experienced for eternity past, so long before there was anything else. Him and the Father shared a glory, and their glory is wrapped up in their unity and mutual love and honor for one another. That unifying love that they are one. They are Father, Son, and from what we know, too, in the context of John's Gospel, Father, Son, and Spirit, they are one. You know, there's three persons, but they share a unity. They share a common love. They share a common purpose when it comes to redeeming the world. They are one. That is their glory. And so what we see here is Jesus is acknowledging that their eternal glory is wrapped up in their unity with one another. And our glory as believers is grounded in the fact that we are invited to participate in the family life of God. See, God, through all eternity, has, been, has had a family relationship in his being. It's not that he became a family at one point. He has always existed as a father to a son. He has always shared that deeply family connection in his one being. You know, it might be hard for us to wrap our minds around because, you know, Brian and I are two separate beings. And we're two separate persons. But for God, 
He is one being for three persons. Yes. And he's not just like, you know, they're like, you know, just, <laughs> I don't know how to describe this with a metaphor, but they're not just like sitting there for all eternity doing nothing. They're relating to one another. Yeah. They're yeah. loving each other. They're honoring each other. They're glorifying and enjoying each other's fellowship. And what Jesus is saying is that this is your eternal life. Is that I take that family life, that family fellowship that I have enjoyed with the Father, and I give that to you to experience, not just now, but forever. You know, eternal life in Scripture, including in John's Gospel, is one of those really big ideas that you can't just summarize in one statement, okay? So eternal life in John's Gospel and in his writings is basically the idea that that God has taken people who have been dead in their sins, and as they trust in Jesus with their whole heart, they are made alive again. You know, their hearts are renewed. They're made alive to love what God loves and hate what he hates, but also pointing towards a time when their physical bodies and the world that we all live in is going to be made fully alive. I uh, taught a grade 11 Old Testament class this past semester, and I basically told them, if you want to summarize the whole biblical story in one sentence, it's that God the Father, through his son Jesus, and by the power of his Holy Spirit, makes human beings like us fully alive and all of creation with us. That is the Bible story in a nutshell. That he takes us, makes us fully alive. And we know we're not fully alive yet. I still am in this body that's going to decay. I still don't fully love God with my whole heart. I still don't fully love my neighbor completely as myself. You know, that sort of thing. So we are on, we are becoming more and more alive as Jesus imprints his character onto us. But we look forward to when he will make us fully alive and even our bodies will be made like his glorified and perfected body. That's the theme of eternal life. So Jesus is not saying here that all it is is just, you know, an eternal life without a body, without a world where you're just, you know, enjoying God's love. He is saying, he, this is in the back of his mind, this whole picture of eternal life. But what it is saying is the core of that life, that core of that renewed, perfected, physical life is this family life of the Trinity, and that that is the power source of not only our new life as, you know, individual people, but our unity as a congregation and as a church worldwide, because Jesus prays that that glory, that unity that he has experienced with the Father and the Spirit forever we will share in that unity as well. Another way you might think of this is as you and I are invited into Jesus and into his family life, we are invited into that life with brothers and sisters. In other words, you can't, you know, divide that. Like, oh, you know, I'm, I am brought into Jesus' family, but being part of a family of believers, that's optional. You are connected to Jesus. And by being connected to Jesus, you are connected to the people around you this morning. We are brought into the same family bond. 
And so when we struggle to live like a family, it's usually a sign that we need to be brought back to how are we family in the first place? Right. You know? It's because the Holy Spirit has awakened our hearts, brought us into connection with Jesus, who has had a father forever. He is the eternal son of God, and we are brought into that fellowship together. So we are connected to the body of Jesus together. Joel, can I ask, if I'm hearing correctly from you and John, yes, is, is if we are having a problem with being united as a family, yes. or we're having a trouble with a brother or sister, Maybe it's anger issues, or it's just like, I'm not talking to them. I don't want to see them. If we're, if we're not in unity and fellowship with the church body, could it be something to do with the root of our belief in the eternal life, the power of the eternal life we've received, or something to do with our unity with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Is there a direct, you're saying, there's, I'm hearing you say there's a direct correlation. Is that what you're saying? That could affect our unity with one another? Absolutely, and I, I think it, it can kind of show up sometimes in that, you know, we, we know we are, like, you know, we use that term saved, right, when Jesus saved me, and we kind of think about that in this really, like, abstract way of, like, oh, yeah, I'm forgiven, you know, I can now be obedient by the Spirit's power, that sort of thing, but we forget that all of this is in the bigger context of a family relationship. That's right. The forgiveness the new power for obedience, and even eventually the, you know, the experience of made, made completely like Jesus, all of that is within a relationship context. So it's inviting us to say, what is being saved? What is eternal life? It is knowing the one true God and Jesus whom he has sent. You know, in a few weeks, um, we're going to look at 1 John Three, one, and two. Uh, someone else will be bringing that that message. Um, but in that passage, it talks about how we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been made known. He's not saying it's something totally different than being a child of God. He's saying it's even more beautiful than the experience of being a child right now. That experience of being God's child. Ch- child will be even more glorious when Jesus comes again. And when we see him, we will be made like him because we will see him as he is. That face-to-face connection, that relational connection is what invites us into the experience of being a perfected, glorified community. So you can see even in the end of the line, this all fits in within the context of experiencing Jesus' life and his family life Closely, And so when we, like Brian said, when we see that, you know, I struggle to love this brother or sister. And don't, that happens. You know, some of us wouldn't hang out yeah. if it wasn't for the mutual connection of new life in Jesus. Yeah. So there is going to be a little bit of rub sometimes, you know. It's going to happen. But Jesus doesn't want us to just be like, oh, it's difficult, you know, and just to kind of sit back. He wants us to come in and say, what is the eternal life I have been invited into? It's the family life, the unity of father and son. And that comes with 
not just the calling to love my neighbor, but the power to do so. So, Joel, I'm going to ask you a, a personal question, a little different than we talked about. But with this truth in mind, all right? Because yes. I believe you embrace it and you're walking it out. You, your family was starting to attend Koinonia, and you went out west for school. So though yes. they remained here, became their home church, you were elsewhere for a number of years and studying. And then you came back to Ontario, and then you were discerning, do I make Koinonia my home church? I know maybe some things I've heard from my family that are good, and maybe some things that are not healthy. And, and then you came on staff with us. And you were on staff for a year, and then you were let go by your boss for some reason. Joel, what, what keeps you pressing back in? Now, if anybody doesn't know, I was his boss, and we went through some changes last summer, and Joel was one amongst other staff that we did release, not because of his behavior or anything, but just the challenges of our situation. But Joel, you're still here with this community. What what out of this truth grabs your heart personally to stay a part of this community of believers and not wake, walk away offended or hurt? Mm. Oh, man, that is a good question. <laughs> I mean, one I have an answer for. Sorry. I just, it's, he I does. have to wrap I trust my mind I around. Have to. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, you know, it, I think it comes down to the humble desire to walk out the kind of thing that we're talking about yeah. today. Yeah. It's not because, you know, if you are a part of this church, you're going to experience something so unique that nobody else has, right? right? Like, we are a part of a global, universal church. And, you know, it's not like we have the secret agenda that Jesus hasn't also given to all of his believers. You know, he's invited us to share in his missional life, you know, together as many churches in one city and globally and whatnot. So it, but it's because we as a, the community here at Koinonia has that humble desire to posture themselves to walk that out. That openness of, you know, Jesus wants to make us into something. Yeah. He wants to make, you know, Ephesians, uh, sorry, I know it's not by John, but anyway, Ephesians 4 talks about um, the ministry of the body being brought together so that we together may pursue mature manhood. Yeah. And it's that idea of like, we are not yet what we are called to be, but day by day, we're taking on more and more of that as Jesus continues to build his church here. And that posture of like, we want to pursue that together. And we're willing even to have some of our, you know, some things about us, you know, brought to light that, you know, we could do better or it's sometimes not even always worse to better, but just different. Yeah. Um, but we want to be open to that. And, you know, even more than, you know, having it all together, I think that that humble posture um, and the desire to be a true family, you know, like there, you know, sometimes the habit, you know, the, the tendency in the North American church can be, you know, to become really event centered and that sort of thing. And, but just the desire to be a family around the family life of God. Yeah. Um, I think yeah. it really attracted me. So, amen. Yeah. Amen. And it's something we need to continuously work at because divisions will come up. Disagreements will happen in this body, but also in your family unit. Divisions will happen. 
But this same truth can be applied to your heart and life and say, God, show us because of the gift of eternal life, the unity you have as Father and Son and your spirits in me, how to do life with the people I rub shoulders with every day, that I have to wait in line for the bathroom until they're done, to uh, deal with those who mess up the dishes, to deal with those who are close with me yet say something very offensive to me. This same truth will still unite us together as a family, husbands and wives, sons and daughters, stepmothers, stepsons, stepfather, all of the complexities of family. That's why I come back to it and can have the real and sometimes hard conversations with a brother and say, hey, unfortunately, this is a decision we have to implement. It's going to affect you and your new wife, but let's pray together for God to walk us through it in unity. And God can do it in the church body. God can do it in your immediate family. God can do it in your neighborhood, your place of employment. The truth applies all across life. Do you see that? Do you embrace that? That's what we're here to grasp today. So Joel, we got to land this this morning. Um, We've talked about the root of deception. We've talked about the root of fellowship and community um, that we could be taken into a path of deception. But no, by the power of eternal life in us, the Father will keep us united in his way. So coming down to it, looking at the the freedom and the fullness we have in Christ, um, what can help us walk this out? What should we do out of this morning to look at ourselves as we keep studying into the Word of God? Is there something coming to your heart that way that we can conclude on? Yeah, so uh, I'm a student at Regent College in Vancouver still. I don't travel there because I'm working on my thesis, but there are two... um, there are two Latin phrases that we throw around. This is what happens at graduate level school. People talk in Latin phrases. All right, but, but I, don't, I don't speak Latin, so make it easy. Make don't it easy. worry, don't worry, yes. <laughs> okay. So I'll tell you the Latin phrases, but I'll tell you the English ones too. So that there's, there's two postures your life can take. One is known by the phrase, in curvatus in se, which is another way of saying the life curved in on itself. The life curved in on itself. The life curved okay. in on itself. Yep. It's like a metaphor picture of describing, you know, a life where rather than embracing, you know, Jesus by trust and rather than, you know, embracing your relationships with one another in generosity, love, you're curved in. You almost could like picture, it's like the picture of like someone like huddled in the corner of a room, right? Where you're like, Rather than being generous, you're self-focused. Rather than trusting Jesus, you're like self-managing. Inward thinking. You're very, all, you're very inward. All about me. Right. And when you're living in curvatus in say, or when you're experiencing the life curved in on itself, it is really hard to love your neighbor. Because number one, where is the power to do that going to come from if you're not trusting in Jesus and seeking the power of the Holy Spirit? Also, Typically, some, if you're in that position, you might even experience some, some like feelings of shame or things that might keep you from going into community because you're curved in. You're, I know we talk about like navel-gazing, right? You're like curved yeah. in, like <laughs> how could someone accept yeah. me? Like I need to kind of manage, make sure like that I, you know, get everything I, you know, deserve, all that kind of stuff. You're very curved in. And you might even, exp- that could come from, you know, experiencing, you know, doubt at, the love of Father and Son and Spirit being for you, right? 
you know, we love because he first loved us, that sort of thing. When I see you closing in like that, I yes. also see you then shielding people, keeping them out, keeping them away. So whether keeping away God's love, for sure, or keeping out, blocking others from getting into your heart. Right, yeah, and sometimes we don't see that, like, a byproduct of that is it's hard to be generous when you're like that. It's hard to foster unity when you're like that. And sometimes you can't even see the root of deception because you're so focused in, right? So that's, that's the first saying. The second is the opposite. And rather than in curvatus, in se, it's ex curvatus, ex se. It's the life curved out from itself. That you are fixed in the eyes of your heart on Jesus. You are someone who seeks to behold his glory with your life. And as an extension, you are also embracing his people with love and generosity and aiming to foster unity. So how we might bring this on the ground for us is we could use these as x-ray questions for myself, you know? If you think of those words like shame, fear, selfishness, all those kind of words, like how am I someone who has become curved in on themselves? And it could be from all kinds of experiences and even hurt, and we don't want to discount that hurt by any means, but sometimes that leads us to be curved in on ourselves. You know, community, when I've opened myself up to community in the past, I have gotten hurt. You know, that can happen. And it really does hurt. But we might say, how has that made me someone who is curved in on myself? How am I so guarded about my time, my talents, my treasure? Those are three three things we talk about here. Or how am I even guarded in terms of what I'm willing to open up and trust somebody else with? Or how am I guarded that, like, I can't even think about how to love that other person because I'm so focused on me, right? How am I curved in on on myself? And what might it look like for me to transition by the Spirit's help from this into this? What might it look like for rather than shame causing me to retreat from community, what might it look like to step out and have that hard conversation? What might it look like to step out and be generous? What might it look like to squash the beef with my brother or sister in Christ? What might it look like to not let another day go by without me stepping into a new serving opportunity that Jesus might be calling me into? What might it look like for me to sit on my lawn so that I can talk to my neighbors. You know, all these kinds of things. What might it look like for me to turn out from myself? And we need that, both the vertical and the horizontal. We need that vision of Jesus' glory because that is what transforms us, right? We need that vision of the Father, Sons, and Spirit's eternal unity in life to transform us. So that vertical, but then also the horizontal, right? So, Joel, I'm going to finish us with this prayer. Yeah. And I'm going to lead us in a prayer on your behalf in that direction. And then we're going to just take 30 seconds in silence for you to listen to the Father to speak to you. We've given you lots of where this letter's going and the beginnings of it. But you just listen and say, Holy Spirit, speak to me. What relationships? What situations? Where have I curved in? 
Where do I need to open myself up to you, God? So let me pray. Would you bow as I pray? Heavenly Father, we see the power and the relation of, of the power in the relationship that you have with the Son and with your Spirit. We hear John testify to that unity. He quotes Jesus, who, who prayed for us that we might be one with you, just as the Son and the Father and Spirit are one. And so, God, though in our humanness we can't figure all that out, we know in your supernatural working, through the faith we have in receiving Jesus, that you unite us as your sons and daughters. And so, Father, we want to step fully into your truth in this area so we can be united in fellowship as one another, as a church body. And therefore, God, we do some self-examination. Inwardly, outwardly, we, we ask you to reveal to us, show us, God, is there anything in our belief system, in our patterns and activities, in our daily actions that are hindering us from embracing your truth and having sincere, true, authentic fellowship with one another. We ask you to speak to us this morning, Father. And Heavenly Father, what you are revealing to us, give us the faith, the boldness, the courage to step into it and have a conversation with somebody, get support from a mentor, a pastor, another leader. God, guide us to do something with what you're revealing in our hearts so we can experience unity through the bond of peace of Jesus Christ that we have in common together. And it's in his name we pray and say amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today. We want to encourage you to let the Holy Spirit sink today's message into your heart, to let it transform you and bring new life. If you want to learn more about Koinonia, you can go to kcf.life to get connected. Thank you for being a part of our community. If today's message encouraged you, we would love for you to rate it and review it and share it with a friend. We love you. Let's continue to build God's kingdom together.